0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Honorable guests, distinguished delegates, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to welcome you officially to COP27. We want climate justice now. It's time to save our planet and our future. My generation is already the victims of climate change. We are all here today. Because we continue to use the thin blue shell of atmosphere surrounding our planet as an open sewer. The COP27 climate negotiations are underway this week in Egypt. It's an annual event held by the United Nations where countries from around the world meet to discuss how to fight global warming. Last year, those countries made some big promises to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and to move away from burning fossil fuels but they did not settle on exactly how or when to meet those goals. So as world leaders come to the table once again, what's on the agenda? And what steps will they need to take to develop a coordinated international approach to a warming planet? Here to discuss is Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. She's the director of Loyola University Chicago's Baumgart Center for Social Enterprise and Responsibility. Hey, Karen. Hey, Sasha. Set the scene for us, Karen. What's happening in Sharm el-Sheikh? So we've
1: just started the two-week COP27, as you said, conference of the parties. So we literally have the vast majority of governments attending. We've got probably 35,000 people there. But what we've really got is this annual opportunity for leaders to come together to accelerate solutions on climate. And that is everything from reducing emissions to ensuring fairness for the countries and people who are already being impacted by climate change.
0: We know global temperatures are rising rapidly, Karen. So just remind us how much warming we've already seen and where we seem to be headed if world leaders don't start to take more serious steps.
1: We have seen warming around the globe. And the, the best estimates are that we've seen about 1.1 1. 1 degrees Celsius. And this is typically referred to as Celsius. So a quick translation is that's about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit for us. Wow. If you look at all the plans that countries have, If they're executed, that could get us to about 2.5 degrees, meaning the plans that exist are strong. They're not strong enough. But the context is, if you go back, the the COP that people tend to talk about is Paris. That was COP 21. Mm -hmm. So it was 2015. The year before that, the trajectory is that the globe was on track for a 4-degree Celsius rise. So we've actually changed the trajectory already, but it's not tight enough to where we need it.
0: What kind of effects would we see if temperatures warmed according to some of those more dire predictions? Like, what would that mean for agriculture and just the number of scorching hot days that we see, wildfires? What's that going to mean?
1: Yeah, the key here is that these are scenarios. Like, we can go very different directions. And we've already seen a bit of a change, but but one simple example would be, if you think about a world with a two-degree warming versus a 1.5, that doubles the number of people who are exposed to extreme heat, just as an example. Or another, if you look at the three degrees, and if if countries execute the plans that they have, we are under three degrees, but if you look at three degrees, you start to see a significant drop in global food production, which is right about that agriculture question.
0: So if we make um, changes to our habits at the individual level or or the family level, um, those are important. But in order to address climate change, we really need to start thinking bigger, right, about governments implementing changes.
1: Everybody's got to be in. So absolutely, the the opportunities at the home and and with your family absolutely add up. Uh, They might be small amounts of carbon, but every bit of carbon matters, and carbon sticks in the atmosphere for a very long time. And if you scale what individuals can do, that is significant. It's also part of education and engagement and demonstrating support for climate action. And that's actually what governments often need to take those bigger steps. So absolutely, this is, and the reason we're talking about this at COP is this is where governments are working together collectively on behalf of all of us. And you do need all of these levels engaged. So, yes, we should continue to do the things we can at home uh, to tell people about what we're doing, Mm -hmm. but really to recognize we need governments and this global COP process. To bend the curve collectively.
0: Well, something I've always wondered, too, Karen, is that, you know, if if the world, the whole world, were to actually stop using fossil fuels for buildings and for vehicles, if it was all wind, solar, geothermal, and other renewable energy, where would that put our world?
1: Well, I like your scenario. Uh, let's put that <laughs> one. Make sure people are focused on that one. yeah. Longer term, that's kind of where the climate plans need to get us. It's really about kind of getting to net zero by 2050, if not before. There is still some warming baked in. I mean, the oceans have warmed. Temperatures are up. We would see that. But if, if we can take your scenario of, of eliminating all fossil fuels and if we can also put in some carbon sequestration, if we can have a lot of trees and other things that are pulling some carbon out, um, you could see stabilization and you could actually start to pull some carbon out of the atmosphere.
0: I'm imagining that even if every one of these world leaders got on board here, it, it would still take many, many decades to achieve all of this. but we don't have all that time, do we?
1: No, we've got to get focused, and uh, global leaders are engaged, and that you know, that is why we have so many folks engaged at cop right now. and uh, the verbal agreement and what was essentially written down in Paris and then and then solidified in tight action in Glasgow, which was cop from last year is this goal of limiting temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius. We would need to cut emissions by about half by the end of this decade to get there. So there is a pathway, it is, it, it's seeable, uh, and you can get to a 1.5 degree goal, but it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of coordination that we don't see yet in all the plans from the countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is all happening, COP 27, at a time when we are still waiting to learn which party is going to control the House and the Senate after Tuesday's midterms. Uh, this country plays a leading role in climate negotiations. So, So how different would the world's approach to climate change be if Democrats retain control versus if Republicans take control?
1: You're absolutely right that the U.S., has been a global leader here, but also recognize a few years ago we're the only country that actually walked away. We actually left the Paris Agreement and then only reentered a couple of years ago. So the idea of the U.S. as a leader, um, we need to be in that place. It's actually how Paris happened in 2015, U.S. leadership in partnership with China. But if the, depending on which way the elections go, the negotiations are still done at the executive level. So you will still have, uh, based on the current presidential administration, engagement there. The question really is credibility. Will the world believe that the U.S. is leading and will the world believe that the U.S. can even get its own emissions under control, let alone support other countries and provide general leadership? So that credibility is really what's at stake.
0: Yeah. Let's talk briefly about the um, Inflation Reduction Act. We know that that passed in the lead up to the midterms um, and it was in part structured to jumpstart the green economy. How many more steps would the U.S. specifically need to take to keep to global warming in check?
1: So The Inflation Reduction Act is a critical piece. It was a a very large and unexpected this summer piece that the U.S. did pass, and that's about $370 billion to help pivot the U.S. economy towards a cleaner path. It's the largest single single climate investment the U.S. has ever made. And it gets the U.S. close to President Biden's goal of cutting carbon pollution in half by 2030, close to. So there's still a little bit more that needs to happen. uh, But this was the biggest step we had seen in a single chunk and that the U.S. is now back in the story, and there's more that needs to happen. But you've got now a lot of carrots built into the economy, because this is all essentially tax-break and incentive-driven. Mm-hmm. But you now can see a pathway to move us.
0: This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we're talking with Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert about the 2022 United Nations Climate Change Conference. It's commonly called COP27. World leaders are meeting this week and next week for the annual event where They're trying to coordinate on plans to slow global warming. Karen, we talked about the U.S. So I want to shift now to talking about the global backdrop to this entire conference, because things are very different than they were even a year ago. Right. First of all, we have the war in Ukraine. Inflation is another big one. So how do those two issues connect to the world's ability to actually get something done here on climate change?
1: As you said, it, it's a very different year uh, than last year. And last year was a different year than the year before. It's right. Exactly. I mean, these unique points here, we're actually seeing energy being used as a weapon, particularly when you think about Russia and access to gas across Europe. So that's leading to pushes for both efficiency, which, uh, you know, reducing the energy that's used, but there's also an immediate pressure to source fossil fuels from other places. So prices are high. People who are selling fossil are making extraordinary amounts of money right now. So near-term, it's a push towards fossils to fill the gaps that exist, but it is also accelerating the transition to green, particularly if you think about Europe, and we talk about gas and the importance there. We're going into winter. It's heating season. Heating is often done by gas, and you're seeing heat pumps selling unbelievably quickly. So people are looking to put in that infrastructure that will reduce this reliance on fossil and gas, in part under this pressure because of this war in Ukraine. And you're also seeing the backdrop of high prices. Again, if you're selling, it's a great time, but it's also reinforcing the need and opportunities to move away from fossils fossil fuels. Uh, but it's a challenging time to spend money.
0: So in the last year we've we've also seen the um, the impacts of climate change firsthand all over the globe, really. One of the biggest that I can think of right now were the the devastating floods in in Pakistan. And that situation, I think highlights the fact that climate change, has a disproportionate effect on poorer countries, Karen, even though it's the richer, larger and more developed countries like the U.S. and and China that create the most emissions. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and Pakistan is a great example, in part because of the leadership role Pakistan is going to be playing um, right now in terms of leading developing nations. And this devastation was clear. You know, 1,700 people killed, two million homes destroyed, yeah. and about a third of the country was flooded. Now, I think the numbers I've seen are that's about 30 billion dollars in physical and economic loss. But if you wow. look historically, Pakistan was the source of something like 0.4 percent of historic carbon pollution. And Pakistan, wow. many folks in Pakistan are also what would be considered energy poor. Meaning they don't have regular access to electricity or transportation and the communications equipment. So Absolutely. It's a devastating example where you're seeing climate amped flooding in a country that has contributed very little to the emissions that are around us. And that's an example of what we're seeing globally of poor countries seeing devastation that they did not help create.
0: One thing that is um, is being discussed this week, it's putting a higher priority on funds for loss and damage for poorer countries. What does that mean?
1: there is a real focus here, and this is a newer and emerging area if the dollars really get committed. But it's something people have talked about for a while. So specifically, if you think about a developing country, quite honestly what any country needs, you need to transition away from fossil. Um, You also need to build infrastructure that is resilient as weather changes with storms and heat. But the climate has already started to change, and so countries are impacted now. And who pays for that? That's the loss and damage question. So for Pakistan, they have to rebuild roads. They have to house people. They need food and medicine for folks who are displaced. Who pays for that? It's this idea of there's loss and damage today caused by other countries, and there's now clear expectations and asks that the wealthier nations provide funding to cover this loss and damage because it's already happened.
0: And I understand the, the U.S. was silent on this. Why?
1: This has been... an. A tricky issue globally. There's been a general reluctance among wealthier countries because of the implication of liability, Uh, that this establishes clear liability for things that are being driven by the climate globally. And you are starting to see some countries move forward a little bit on this space and to start to put a few dollars into this idea of loss and damage. Uh, This is going to be one of the critical topics that's going to be discussed throughout this COP.
0: Aside from this loss and damage discussion, give us briefly some of the, the biggest proposals to to come out of COP27 so far.
1: Well, carbon offsets and carbon trading has actually been a big topic. The U.S. and John Kerry, the U.S. climate envoy, brought forward a new initiative. And they're calling it the Energy Transition Accelerator. But it's really focused on bringing dollars in into developing countries for companies and countries globally who are emitting. So, in other words, how do you create your offset? So, they're working to create a voluntary market Mm -hmm. uh, that fossil fuel producers would be eliminated from participating in, but that would allow dollars to be channeled into developing countries. So, that was a big one. Interesting. we saw something coming forward in terms of another focus on markets, and that was from some of the African countries specifically. So, we've seen those two being big on carbon one thing that also was announced, and this is again, many organizations are involved who aren't necessarily the governments negotiating. But there's a new tool, Climate Trace, that is bringing in what the UN Secretary General has called a, an era of radical transparency for emissions tracking. And mm-hmm. this is an effort. One of, in the intro, we heard Al Gore's voice, and he's been working on this. Mm. And they're now using artificial intelligence, satellite imagery and analytics to try to identify actually how much is being emitted in different points around the globe. So not taking what people are reporting, they're actually calculating it. So they found, for example, a single steel factory in China is emitting as much carbon as Nicaragua. So you're also seeing that. So those are some of the big things that I've noticed just in the first few days.
0: So I know even bringing things back home, Karen, the American Institute of Architects Chicago sent the Lightfoot administration a letter just talking about the importance of COP27. Um, But uh, in the interest of time, leave us with this. How does what's being discussed in Egypt this week connect most directly to our day-to-day lives? I'm thinking of listeners tuning in right now.
1: Absolutely. And as people are listening right now, the key thing to look at is what are the major options and opportunities for us day-to-day and for our country? So are people continuing to move forward for us? Day to day, we look at our transportation. Uh, We look at the energy used in our home and we look at the food and the products that we buy, but also the leaders we support in for profit, non profit, and government. And we see in COP that all of those sectors are engaged. Officially, it's governments negotiating, but all of those sectors are present in this two week period. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, we see that aspiration that people are trying to bring in day to day coming through at the national and global levels so that collectively, we're seeing the transformation. And that's actually part of what happened a few years ago when the U.S. was out of the COP process. We saw governments at the local and national level, and we saw companies and individuals really step up to represent what the U.S. felt was possible. Uh, Hopefully we see that again.
0: That's Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. Thank you so much, Karen. Great to talk to you.